through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power, its living effect in our hearts and our lives. Lord, as it is proclaimed to us this morning, as it is, it is preached to us just as the prophets proclaimed it, as the apostles proclaimed it, now is given to preachers in your church to proclaim it, Lord, might it continue to roar forth, Lord, with the breath of God. Lord, as it is proclaimed, might we receive it, might we hear it, Hearing it, might our hearts be changed, might we um, see our sin, turn from it, see you more clearly, and turn to you, Lord. We love you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, as Dan mentioned, um, I'd be grateful for your attendance and the, for the transfer of my personal pastoral credentialing. Um, uh, into the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, we have a, a lovely uh, worship service planned for that night. Um, uh, some songs that correspond. Men from my presbytery will be here. I would love for you all to meet them uh, and to get to know the brothers of our presbytery. Uh, so I would be grateful if you found it uh, able in your schedule to make time to come for that service. I, I would be indebted. As I think of uh, this morning's sermon, as you're probably considering it yourself, uh, as you followed along last week, Pastor Dan handled this text uh, in many ways. And so it's not in order to re-tread uh, the path that was already trodden, I think is how I would say that. Um, at any rate, I'm not trying to go back over what he perhaps missed. When I began working on the text for this week, um, you see there uh, the beginning of verse 9. Um, it stands in contrast, right? But you, uh, as he directs his discussion to the Church of Christ there, he says, but you are a chosen race. Um, so it's hard to then proceed um, in the descriptions of what that means for you uh, if you don't at least acknowledge the transition of contrast from those who are offended and those who are stumbling. And then you get into, as he mentioned last week, a little bit of the difficult uh, handling of they were predetermined to behave this way. There's no doubt um, that, that speaking and explaining and reading and discussing 
the doctrine that seems to be most of a, what seems to be, I don't know if it's fair to say, a, a lightning rod or, or, or a difficult issue among evangelical Christians from different traditions as the doctrine of election. What is commonly referred to, perhaps you've heard it more described as unconditional election, meaning that the elect, those who were chosen as the race of Christ, the people of God's very own possession, that their election unto this status comes without conditions. It, it, they didn't meet a particular uh, condition and thereby God determined based upon their achieving or arriving at or stumbling upon said condition, then he elected them. Uh, what, what, and so, again, I trust that you know this as much as the, the sun rises in the east. If you've been a believer for any portion of time in the evangelical church, uh, this discussion at some point has been over a coffee table. If you've gone to school in a religious environment, it's been had out in every dormitory room. Uh, and, 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 and sometimes constructive, well, maybe we should say once in a while constructive, most oftentimes not. And, and so what we want to do is, again, one of the points of um, our method of preaching called expository preaching is, as you know, if you've been at Redeemer a season of time, is we, we join with the author and we work through the text. This enables us to cover a wide array of items without jumping on topics. And then because Adam's disposition is toward this, he preaches a lot of sermons about that. And then another person's disposition, Dan's, is like this. And he preaches a lot of sermons like that. And now we approach, we know, oh, here it goes again. And over here, it's like, I like that one better. because I'm. So it prevents us from being that, but it also bears a burden. That when you do arrive at texts that are challenging for all hearers, challenging for all speakers, challenging for our cultural moment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it is what it is. We have to stay the course. We are following what the author has laid out for us. And again, too difficulty, yes, but we have to face these things as the church of Christ, as intended. Therefore, our benefit. So, so, so we're not nervous or shy or embarrassed. We desire to know what is knowable because what's knowable is for our edification. It, it, this isn't something to think, oh, I don't, I don't want to believe X, Y, and Z because it puts me in a weird place. Then, 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 then you, me, whoever, in that response, we're in a weird place. If what we... It, it, it discern and desire to know we come across something we really are uncomfortable knowing and we find that to be a problem we have the problem what is written is for our edification further if it is to be for our edification which it is and we are to achieve that in an edifying manner then we need to know it well because if we trace back some of the discussions over election over uh uh, any number of other doctrines, but this morning we're talking about election. Um, where the, uh, the bus loses all its tires and careens down into the cliff, the, the, off the cliff, I should say, the, the, where that happens is because we're not handling it well. So, so if it's for our edification, I need to know it. 
And if I'm to know it and it's to be edifying not only to me, but to my neighbor alongside of me, then I need to speak well and think on it clearly and be able to communicate it effectively. Otherwise, it just becomes that noisy gong and that clanging cymbal. And it's not helping me. It's not helping you. Um, It's a disaster in in our discussions. So what I want to do is I'm going to get to 9 and 10. Uh, not, verse 9 was actually our kind of thesis verse for Redeemer uh, in, in, at our very earliest portions when we were planting Redeemer. That was the purpose statement that we came up with in maybe 2007-ish prior to arriving in Pittsburgh. And we thought, what is something that would define or clarify Redeemer's purpose? What is my purpose, your purpose as a minister? Well, it, it, it seems that we've been redeemed for the purpose of proclaiming. So, so he, 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 he drew us unto himself in order that, with purpose, that you would go forward doing something, namely uh, proclaiming his excellencies. Now, again, it's not that I am doing it and Dan is doing it or any other minister of the gospel alone, but that you are doing it, that, that the people of God are doing it by head and their thought life. It, it, by their heart, as Reformed theology breaks down in that three-form ethic, head, heart, and hands. So in the heart, I'm proclaiming, I'm meditating, I'm coming, I'm prepared, I'm singing, I'm exhorting. I'm, I, I'm, so in my heart, I'm proclaiming His excellence. And then in my hands, in the way that I behave, in my ethical movements, I'm proclaiming His excellencies. I, in other words, I'm kind of back where Peter started. I, I'm pursuing a life of holiness because he who called me out of darkness and placed me in his marvelous light is holy and he drew me into light in order that i would live in the light in a manner of movement and ethics and thought and heart and meditation so uh nine and ten has a place in redeemer's history for quite some time i want to be able to handle nine and ten well by coming out of the last part of verse eight and we'll get there in just a couple of moments but there is a a, a kind of a faithful summary of our understanding of scripture that will help us to handle eight and nine as the contrast. They stumble, it's offensive to them, and I want you to understand this. This is a part of their destiny. And in contrast to that destiny, I want you to know yours. That's the pivot, right? The pivot, but you, on the other hand, So in order to really grasp your privilege, uh, the the position of redemption and the lifelong benefit all the way unto eternity that that gives to you, there is a manner in which you have to face, have to consider, whether it's my argument this morning or another argument tomorrow or another time that you look into this in personal study, whatever it is, I'm going to lay forward an argument. I, I seek to persuade. So I hope that you can consider my argument and you can meditate because it is, I hope, the goal of the argumentation is to be receptive so that it will be unto you ultimately edifying and empowering. Let me begin with you then. That was all just for free. So we might be a few minutes late. I will fast forward at some point. I'll pick it in here and I'll fast forward. But to begin with you, we say it again and again, and, and, I, and we have to because this is the way that the letters are, instru- are structured. But the inspiration, please, uh, this is where it goes for the pivot of verse 9. And I'll, I'll, he'll explain that in verse 11. I don't want to steal thunder from 11, but beloved, you notice where he goes, ethics. I urge you, abstain for the passion of the flesh. Upon what grounds are you urging me? Upon the inspiration for your righteous living and ethical purity is gratitude, brother. 
gratitude. I urge you, upon what grounds? Gratitude. What should I be grateful for? You are a chosen people. That, 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 that's what unconditional election promotes when it's rightly held and grasped, is gratitude. Not arrogance, which is constantly the smear. But, it, but, it, but the authors intended it as God has designed it and inspired this text, that you are these people chosen in grace. What should come from that? Pride? No, 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 no. I urge you, be arrogant. No, 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 no. I urge you, abstain from the passions of those, those fleshly instincts. Abstain from them. Notice the thematic development at the very beginning. Again, Peter says that God has caused us to be born again. You remember this. And the way that he structures, by the time he urges us to live a particular way, is upon the grounds of what God has done for us. Again, it's not paying it back. It's moving forward in gratitude. Peter says that God has caused us to be born again. We covered that in chapter 1. Somewhere, I think, what was the text? It was uh, verse one, uh, 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 chapter 1, verse 3. According to his great mercy, there's the grounds of birthing you in the faith. He caused us, by mercy, to be born again. The means through which he did this was the Spirit's application of the resurrection from Christ from the dead. He's redeemed us. By the time you get to chapter 2... He has redeemed us, uh, Peter says, with the precious blood, or he uses the term ransomed, not by futile things. In the contrast, describing the futility versus the preciousness of the blood of Christ. Look at verse 19. You see it there. Again, verse 18. You know something about your life of perseverance. What should you constantly call to mind in your time of exile that you were ransomed? Verse 11 of chapter 2. I urge you, upon what grounds? That you, verse 9, were a chosen people. Remember this and lay it to mind in your ethical and uh, 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 performative living. This should inform you. But what, what, what was I redeemed or what was I ransomed by? Verse 19, blood. The blood of belonging to Christ. What is the quality of that blood? It is precious. Again, Peter likes, as you see in the quotation of the Old Testament text down in chapter 2, you see it in verse 4 and verse 6, of which I'll read for you in just a moment. But notice that Peter likes to use the term precious in punctuating the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ. This is what's supposed to shape our minds and then, as we say, in that three-tier kind of living, right? Head, heart, and hands, the classic kind of pedagogical way of communicating life in the faith. That when I, when I think upon the way I've been ransomed, it, I think upon it in relation to the way I am behaving or thinking. I think upon it in terms of what it is. It's precious. And then that preciousness is in contrast to my behavior that is futile. So then I adjust my behavior away from futility to pursue the things that are aligned with precious blood. Um, notice the way that he describes it, as I said, um, drop, drop down in chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 6. He, he reiterates the same issue <clears throat> of verse 19. Now he's speaking of the, the stone that Pastor Dan covered, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, 
And then we'll get into the rejection here in a few moments. But in the sight of God, this is who he truly is. He is chosen of God. I grasp that. And precious in his sight. Uh, that's why you need to remember in your time of exile that you've been ransomed by this very precious blood. And then drop down to verse 6. For it stands in scripture. As Peter uses the quotations, he enjoins preciousness to the blood and person of Jesus Christ for your consideration in your life of behavior. Verse 6, it stands in scripture as he quotes Isaiah. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. And now we know something of this stone in verse 4. It's chosen, yes, yes indeed, and precious. Again, so, and by the time he gets to uh, verse 7, he speaks then this way. Look at the end of verse 6. This is the outcome of the preciousness of this stone. I'll say this. I'm laying the cornerstone among the people. This is the response. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, remember on the language, and, and, and this is, I, I hope to get through this sermon because I'm already 20 minutes behind. Um, but, but, but you have to think with me on this. Whoever believes in him, remember th th that consideration is a promise. Not a statement of generality of how many or quantity or the openness of the offer. Re re remember, it's whoever by promise. I'm telling you the outcome for whoever it is that believes this is the outcome. Where we're going is the question of believing. But, but step back and just say, whoever does thus, whoever does what? Whoever it is, and there are people who will, and whoever they are that do this, believe, they will not be put to shame. That, that is a statement of promise for anyone and everyone who is believing or does believe. This is a statement of promise. You will not be put to shame. Further, he then speaks of another statement in verse 7. So the honor, then, is for you who believe. Whoever, whoever the ones are that are going to believe, whoever they are, they will not be put to shame. Rather, they will experience honor. What does this mean? But that the, if we continue with the text and work through every bit and, and, and piece, that is, as Christ is precious to the Father, the precious blood of Christ, the precious stone that is laid among men. He is precious in the sight of God, and the honor goes to those who lay upon him through faith. As Christ is precious, so Peter insists to the Father, so are we individuals made precious in the sight of that very same Father. How? Through our union to him. That's why it's honor for those who believe. It's not honoring you and honoring what you did instead conditioned to be the one to receive due honors. Your, your honor is attached to whoever believes. Your honor is attached to faith as a vessel that receives not yourself but all of him. This is the union of you into him. That is whereby you receive honor. Because he in whom you are united or wed to is honorable in the sight of the Father. Now, it's important to understand that we derive, as I mentioned to you, all the blessings that I described for you, as Peter says, we're redeemed, 
we're received, we're honored. It's important for you to understand this morning as we lead to the text that all spiritual life that you possess at this moment and will ever possess in the future, all spiritual life and all of its benefits come to you through pure benevolence. And I, and I mean that in a sense of pure benevolence in a manner that is unachievable, a purity of benevolence that is unachievable between fellow men. Right? We have an analogy to that beneficence. I do something for you, I don't want anything back. You do something for me, I, you don't want anything back. We can't repay, we outdo one another in showing honor. That, that, fine, that, that is pretty and beautiful and, and true and good in the sight of God. Things we ought to do outshow one another in honor. But even our most beneficent or benevolent behaviors are merely an analogy to what is truly pure, truly true, and good and beautiful. That's the best we can do in a creaturely manner. That sense of duty and honor and purity is hard for us to then grasp the pure benevolence of God. Because in some measure, even though I don't want anything from you, somehow you feel like I do still. And in my relation to you, I know you don't want me to pay you back for this X, Y, and Z, but in some manner I feel the burden to do so. So in this human sense, it's hard for me to grasp the true freedom of the gospel. Because my creatureliness and my sinfulness hold me back from truly grasping the benevolence of God. He doesn't need you to pay him back. So it is that a life is of gratitude, not one of payment, but one of love, one of gratitude, and as best as we can to honor him in all manner of living as trophies of his grace. It's only when we grasp God's pure benevolence, and I mean it, pure, empty, of needing repayment, will we be, and even in small strides in our life, able to live a life of gratitude. Remember here the important distinction as we move forward. I'll set it up just for you, and then we'll jump into the text in just a couple of moments. But I don't think we can handle the but you are the chosen race and contrast the people who are destined to stumble unless you understand the distinction of the law and the gospel. Let me just briefly rehearse this distinction between law and gospel in order to get to the text to help you grasp it and be edified by it. Remember, if I were to ask you, what is the distinction between the law and the gospel? So you have two categories of words in the Bible, right? So it's overly simplified in some manner because there are subsets of this. But if I was to say to you there are two massive words in the scriptures, what would you say those two forms of word are? Or what words are they? You would say, well, there's law and there's gospel. You'd say, and, and then, okay, right, we can get down into the, into the weeds from there. But if we were to step back, we'd say, what do I hear when I read the Bible? Or what do I hear when I hear preaching? I hear law and I hear gospel. These are the two words that come to me as a human being from God of which I must be accountable to. What is the distinction between them? How, why, is the law the gospel? Is the gospel the law? Are they both kind of mixed and mingled together where they share parts that overlap? No. They're distinct words. But what is the distinction? Let me help you clarify as we lean into the text in just a moment because that is going to help you understand why does someone stumble and why does somebody not when they hear the gospel? Why? 
Think with me just for a moment on law and gospel. What is the distinction? The gospel, and I want you to grasp this purely as we think of God's benevolence. The gospel doesn't require anything from us. So, so, so you notice require. That when, when you hear the good news announcement, Jesus has overcome uh, uh, sin and death. This, this good news, this gospel, it's not requiring something of you. Okay? So you're thinking it, it, it's a, a word of pure benevolence and provision. Again, remember what the gospel is. If you look at um, verse 25, just briefly, you see he set this up the same way. All of these things that you hear about, the purification of your soul, your obedient life, the precious blood of Christ. Where are you hearing this? How do you, how do you scale your life as grass and flesh that withers and uh, fades, but I need the Lord because he remains forever? Where do I hear these things? You see it in the end of verse 25. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. Again, the gospel simply is this. It is a good news announcement. It is purely beneficent. It is purely benevolent and provisional. How do we think of the preaching of the word of God? Like right now, I'm hopefully preaching the word of God to you. If the word of God is going forward in these moments, how are we conceiving of it? I want you to be clear. It is not merely imparting information. I know at times these sermons can get a bit technical, right? Because we're thinking on something that's somewhat hard. And if we don't think on something clearly that's hard, we end up kind of making a major mistake. So we have to think about it clearly. But remember, God's word is not merely imparting information. It actually creates life. We heard that um, in the song that we sang, the new hymn that we sang this morning. You rehearsed these words to yourself, whether you noticed them or not. We spoke and we sang together that God's word actually creates life. It is not only descriptive, telling us things, it is effective. So when God is speaking the gospel that is preached, just like I'm speaking right now, and I'm speaking the word of God. As we work through the text together, God is speaking. If God is speaking, God is acting. Okay? He's announcing. Your sins can be forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. His speaking is his acting. Some people hear that. And they are moved upon. Some people hear that same word, and they are not. The word was preached. Peter just said, this gospel was preached to you. They heard, and some were changed. They heard, and some were not. This is what we're peering into this morning. Think of the law just for a moment as we continue. The law, all right, there's gospel, doesn't require, and then there's the law, which is opposed to provision. And it purely requires. I want you to grasp this just from your own sinful standpoint. When you read the statements of the law, and I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it again. When you read the Ten Commandments, we'll just simplify it again. Just the Ten Commandments. So just think of this together with me. Because you know the Ten Commandments. So when I say to you the law, it can be like, ooh, I don't know what law, what we'd necessarily be referring to. Okay, Ten Commandments. The Ten Words of the Old Covenant. When you read these words, recognize they are opposed to providing for you. They purely require everything of you. When it comes to the law, it makes demands. Thou shall not. 
That's the demand, period. Thou shall not be found doing it, period. There's no provision for you in doing so. It makes demands. It tells you where to go, what to do, and how high to jump. An example, if you were to think of the law, the Ten Commandments, think of them in an instrument fashion. If you were to pick any instrument, you'll probably outdo me in thinking on instruments at some point. Meditate on it and get back to me. You can email me, Adam at Redeemer. But if I could give you one right now, I would say one that really is helpful to think of it is a compass. The law, it goes that way. That's the way that you should go. The distinction is, however, that compass, if you were lost in the woods today, or the guys who are doing the Ruck Limbaugh, or whatever, you get lost in the woods. You pull out your compass, this way north. Great. All you've done is told yourself where you need to go. FYI, the compass will not take you there. It won't go due north. Oh, the compass took me there. No, 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 the compass pointed you there. This is what you think in the terms of the law. It will tell you where to go. It will not get you where you need to be. Okay? Scottish preacher Ralph Erskine, and you know this one. I think I've mentioned it to you before. But he famously once wrote it this way. And I want you to hear this very clearly as we jump into our text in just a moment, I promise. But again, if we don't think this clearly, We'll think it poorly. He once wrote, a rigid matter. You're thinking law and gospel. They're simply two words. I know they're subsets, and we'll talk with them some other time. But you're just thinking about these. If I look at this Bible, I just see two things, law and gospel, two big words. And how do I live faithfully before both of them? And how do I conceive of the world that is responsible for them? So he writes, a rigid matter is the law. And he's exactly right. And then he goes on to describe it this way. Demanding brick, denying straw, right? Make some bricks. Something like, um, thou shall not uh, lie or bear false witness. But how are you enabled to stop bearing false witness and to stop lying? You know you're not supposed to, but how, how effective is that? We all know there's things we're not supposed to do, and we do them. So, so it is with the law, is rigid matter, demanding brick and denying straw. But when the gospel tongue, it sings, distinction, <clears throat> when the gospel tongue, it sings, it bids me fly, and you know the end. It gives me wings. You, you see, it's this last part that makes all the difference in the world. The question is, right, because the gospel then says, let me put it to you like this way. In the preaching of the gospel and the good news announcement, Peter says, what's performative among these folks here? The good news was preached to you, verse 25. The gospel says something like this, and I hope you've heard it, and I trust that you've responded in kind to it and are growing through it. It says, repent of your sins and believe. You, are you familiar with this, right, working through the gospels? It, it, you're like, it does make a demand. It, it tells me to repent and believe. Yes. And it also grants the grace to do so. So what it requires, what the gospel requires, we say it like this. <clears throat> what the gospel requires, it also provides. 
so that when someone hears it, and indeed they perform it, it's because they're being acted upon through that very announcement. Likewise, when someone hears, repent and believe, and they're like, that's offensive. That too is in the plan of God. They also are being acted upon through the preaching of that word. Let me clarify just a little bit. I ask a question this way. This is our next question that we build into our minds. When does the law not only reveal my symptom? I'll I'll read Ralph Erskine one last time quickly, and then I'll jump into the argument, because I know this will be your next question. And if it isn't, I'm telling you it needs to be your next question so that we can follow my answer. It is this, a rigid matter is the law, demanding brick, denying straw, that's the law. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly, requirement, and gives me wings. You see, again, the question then that comes from that is this, when does the law not only reveal my symptoms, point me in the right direction for the cure, but also provide me with the cure in that very moment? You're sick and sinful in need of a savior. Yes, I heard that. But the last part is, and here he is. When does that, and here he is, when does that blood-washed linen cloak me? When, When does that occur? It's easy to say on the one hand, it occurs when you repent of your sin and trust in Christ, of which we invite all men everywhere in every place to do. That's when... Peter is explaining this morning as we get to the text what stands behind the wind of time and space. Expresses the why beyond time in order to move us in our life of gratitude. Let me explain the why of your repentance and faith. Why did you believe? If you have believed and you're a Christian this morning and you say, yes, indeed, my faith terminates and rests upon the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Like, I'm that one who is receiving honor. I believe that sincerely. Again, plagued by doubt throughout my sinful life and my pilgrim's journey. Indeed. I'm a pilgrim like you, clay clay on our way to the celestial city, burdened by every weight and care that creates a shadow of doubt. But, in doubts included, I simply say, indeed, I have trusted in Christ as my Savior. Even in times of turmoil, I raise my hand as, indeed, even though it's hard to confess or even know if I am, I raise my hand as truly belonging. This individual, I ask you then, why? Why are you that person today? You say, because I repented and believed in him, indeed. But Peter wants you to dig even deeper. Do you know from whence your faith and repentance have come. And will that change the way that you think about the passions of your own flesh the next time you're preparing to engage? Because the thought of salvation coming to me, not me fleeing to it, but it fleeing to me and clothing me in blood-washed linen and drawing me up to paradise, that moment came to me by pure benevolence, with a precious blood that was spilt on my behalf and urges me on 
to a life of holy living. Uh, let me show you how. Begin in verse 6. Um, beginning of verse 6. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, and, uh, uh, chosen and precious. Whoever believes, there's a statement of promise. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not, the, the, those who see the stone, it, it is chosen and precious whether they acknowledge it or not. They, they, they've seen or heard the stone through the preaching. Those who do not believe, uh, the stone that the builders, those who don't believe, rejected, well, it, it's become the cornerstone, regardless of being rejected by the builders. It is the cornerstone. And, and then he further describes to those uh, who see and hear of the cornerstone, they reject it. He describes it further. This stone, this very same one, is a stone for stumbling. In a rock, in the place that creates offense. Now, I want to describe for you why. They stumble over the stone. And they disobey unto uh, feeling offended as they hear him or they look upon him. They stumble because they disobey the word that was preached to them. Verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. And, and they stumble because they disobey that word. And then here is the crux of the matter, what stands behind it. As they were destined to do. But I want you to know, who stand here as fruit, bearing fruit from the vine. How did you get here? You're a chosen race. Elected. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What does this all amount to? You're a people chosen for his own possession. He possesses you. For what purpose? That you may proclaim his excellencies. But what has he done for me? He's called you out of darkness. And placed you in marvelous light. Grasp this, he says in verse 10. At one time... You were not a people. Do you understand? But now, you are God's people. Do you understand? Once you had not received mercy, but now, you have received mercy. Now, when you look at that text and you consider there are two people here being presented, or two, two, two responses among mankind, Christ is in the center the word is being preached, and there are two responses. Number one, there is a response of belief. It's an enabling announcement. Some are believing. Secondly, there is some who are unbelieving. Why? Because they're offended. They don't like it. The question we're asking is what stands behind or motivates the two different responses? The answer is this. The positive provision of mercy and compassion grounded in God's electing purpose. Let me read that for you one more time. This, I'm giving you this as the, as the ultimate grounds for why you stand in belief. And which should anchor your soul in times of doubt. I know you have them. I know you do. And I, and I face them too. Shadows rise, tempests roar, etc., etc., etc. Life goes on. 
it creates doubt. A surety and an anchor of the soul is that you can't fumble away what wasn't actually just your best decision you ever made. My anchor holds within the veil. How can I be so sure? Because what stands behind your standing and giving testimony that you belong to Christ is the positive provision of mercy and compassion grounded not in you, but in God's electing mercy. The purpose of God's electing mercy. So the question for all people born in sin and iniquity is this. How can we be saved? Or or, or if you're an individual here who indeed has been saved, how was I saved from my sin? Because the question isn't just for someone else, it's for you. So that verse 11 will urge you as a sojourner to stop your behavior and persevere in holiness. Again, it's not a one-time act. It's a regular recurrence of remembrance. I belong to God. How did you come to belong to God? By his electing mercy. What price did he pay? The precious blood of Christ. He tells you that again and again, verse 10. Once you have to understand, yes, indeed, you're a chosen race. God called you out of darkness. You have to understand it's not just because of you. Verse 10, once you grasp, you were not a people. So the question is, well, then how did I become a person? How did I belong to the people of God? And the answer is we can only be or we have been saved from our sins. I want you to understand this. Solely by God taking the initiative. Solely by God taking the initiative. This is what Peter is pounding in verse 9 and verse 10. We can only be saved from our sins, or we have only been saved from our sins solely by God taking the initiative. You see, you're having experienced the mercy of God is not grounded in your autonomy or what we call the will. It's not why you've experienced mercy. Because you decided that day to make the best decision of your life, weighing out all the other options. Your experience in the mercy of God is grounded in God's eternal decree, whereby he doesn't simply know about you, He knows you relationally. When he says that uh, the psalmist declares, uh, he knew me before I was conceived. It doesn't mean that he knew me in the sense of he knew I was a possibility throughout eternity that in time and space I would probably be a human being. What he's saying to you is he knew you relationally. You corresponded to him. And this knowledge of you, or what sometimes we call foreknowledge, you know, God foreknew. The knowledge of God relating to you, Paul describes in Romans 8, 29, 30. I give that text to you, and, and I am, I'm, I'm landing the plane now. But I, I give the text to you of Romans 8, 29, and 30. Paul describes how this knowledge escalated in your life. 
That is, this knowledge that God had of you, or as Paul calls foreknowing, foreknowledge, is only the beginning. It leads God to his predetermining of your life of mercy and grace. God sovereignly chooses that when you hear the gospel, or, or should I say, for you as a believer this morning, that, that God sovereignly chooses that when you were to hear the gospel, you would be enabled to believe it. You, you see, if you look at the text and it says you were once not a people, then just jump up in the text and think, what other person was I? Well, then I thought the gospel was an offense. And, and with it, I stumbled over it. And whatever my response was, I, I went on disobeying it. That's, that, that's just what I did with it. This was who you were at one time. Then why did I cease to be that person? Because God decreed that at one moment in space and time, you would hear the rock of cornerstone, chosen and precious, and you would say, indeed, he is. And what was that deciding factor? The electing mercy and compassion of God. That, 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 that's it. That, that, that there's only one grounds, and that's the grounds. The unavoidable consequence of this is what Peter speaks of in the text. The unavoidable consequence of understanding the positive electing love of God is that he does not save everyone. It's the unavoidable consequence. And, and it's not something to be avoided. It's something to be grasped and understood. It's not just here in 1 Peter. It's replete through Paul. If we look in the Old Testament text throughout the prophets, it's the same descriptions. The unavoidable consequence of God's positive electing mercy and grace is that he does not save everyone. Many are passed over and they are left in the place of stumbling and a rock of offending. They will go throughout their course of life stumbling, rejecting, and disobeying. Without question, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this is a difficult teaching. It's divided many evangelical traditions, many evangelical church, many families, many believers, broke fellowship needlessly, but they have, over the difficult texts such as this. So I conclude with you this. How is it to my benefit to understand this? How is it to my benefit then? and not like my new battle axe. How is it my benefit? In two ways. Number one, this is in my conclusion to you, or with you. Number one, understanding God's electing mercy and grace in my life destroys the myth of my purity. It destroys the myth of human purity. We have to understand we are born in sin. And over the course of our lifetime, we intensify in our natural-born rebellion to God. This is the, the this is the trajectory of every man that is born apart from the saving, electing mercy of God. 
there, there is not a, a, a warming relation. There is an ever-growing entrenchment of natural rebellion to God. Number two, how is this a benefit? It destroys the myth of human purity for me. Number two, election. Understanding God's electing mercy and grace destroys pride. And you say, oh no, I've met too many Calvinists in my lifetime. That is false. Yeah, I know. I've met them too. Met them too. I've been one. I still am one, but not of that kind. Hopefully not. If so, I'm wrong, not the teaching. Election destroys pride and promotes gratitude. And promotes gratitude. Your life is to be one that proclaims not yourself, but him who called you. That is your life in the faith. Election is to fuel your life of gratitude. I'm going to describe that next week, beginning of verse 11 going forward. This is the grounds for why he can say, I'm urging you. Well, what, what, what's the big deal? Uh, that God chose you to be washed and rinsed with the blood of his son. Wait, no, let me say it differently. With the precious blood of his son. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll help us uh, as we understand your electing mercy, both in the positive proclamation, the receiving of your mercy and your grace, and with your sovereign choosing to withhold uh, and indeed to harden the hearts of the unbelieving through the preaching and the presentation of your word. Uh, we won't handle it perfectly uh, and hold things all in balance and righteousness. This is a work of your spirit, we pray that you'll help our weakness, our frailty, our fleshliness in all of your doctrines, that we'd be courageous and faithful, uh, whether it's in the attacks on human anthropology or sexuality, relations, education, family, whatever it be, that we would just be a courageous people. We, just, we want to follow your word. And if it's in the doctrines that are hard to unwind and unwrap, peering into your mysteries, just give us the courage, the humility, and the faithfulness to be rightly your people, and may it fuel our gratitude. In your name, amen.